said. So let's stand for the reading of the word. Uh, Today, our scripture is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and I'm going to read it to you in the message. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wild. For 40 wilderness days and nights, he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when the time was up, he was hungry. The devil, playing on his hunger, gave the first test. Since you're God's son, command the stone to turn into a loaf of bread. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to really live. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in a series for Lent that Sam started last week um, around the scripture, the 40 days where Jesus was tested in the wilderness as um, just before he started his ministry life. And as Sam said, this season of Lent can be a time of great reflection for us, a time of introspection as we examine what is at the core of ourselves and what it means for us to have God's love poured out through Jesus on the cross as we journey together towards Easter. The three um, temptations of Jesus are temptations that we also have to address within ourselves. The temptations of relevance, significance, and power. And they're important because they impact how we build the church and how we go about living our everyday, ordinary lives just following in the way of Jesus, the way of humility, and the way of servant-heartedness, and of knowing who we are in him. So last week we looked at the second temptation, the temptation to be spectacular, and Jesus' refusal to be the stuntman, to be drawn into the need for applause and great feats of recognition and proof. And today we circle back, because we like to mess with your sense of order, uh, to the first temptation, which is turning stones into bread, the temptation to be relevant and demonstrate relevant behavior. And can I just say at the outset, before we dive into this teaching today, it's pretty dense. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to weigh up and a lot of questions to reflect on. They're going to be rhetorical questions, so you don't need to contribute an answer to the question or raise your head. The people I normally speak to on Sundays like to answer every thought and pondering rhetorical question. So I thought, in case you guys did that kind of thing too, I'd just let you know, just inside our heads today, people. So this is the devil tempting Jesus in his hunger to solve the problem. This so-called immediate problem that the devil points out becomes a question about what Jesus can do, what he can make a bit of a flourish with, how he can prove his power, how useful he is, and how he can get something done and then everyone can get eating. And there's a wee bit of a twisting of the truth and a planting of an idea here. And you may be familiar with the way the devil works. Jesus actually could go ahead and do this. He could, in fact, ignore who he is and ignore the launch of his whole ministry. And based on this moment, see the value of what he does. So the hunger was never the problem. The stones were never the problem. The bread wasn't the problem. And shall we say the requested miracle wasn't actually the problem. The temptation lies in identity. If you are who you say you are, do something. Be something. Bread would not have been my first choice of breaking a fast, and that's why we can't have Griffin's chocolate macaroon biscuits in our house ever. And I'm glad that Jesus didn't check with me as to what he should do in this moment as I'm pretty sure I wouldn't advise something intense and hardcore like a verse from Deuteronomy and a massive stand on identity and a promotion of God's living, breathing, life-giving word. I like to read my Bible with my breakfast. 
So what does it mean for us to desire to be relevant, to be fit for purpose, to be appropriate and suitable, to be doing something, to be connected and to be necessary? Do we, this is one of those rhetorical questions, find ourselves caught up in this tension? Our ability to work wonders and fix things all by our excellent selves versus knowing God as the source of our strength and our security and our identity. Relevance will ask you these questions. Where am I liked? Who needs me? Do I matter? Do I count? Where can I function well at my most confident, my most productive, presenting a strong and capable image of myself? How am I useful? Do I contribute in an immediate, visually successful and appreciated way? Am I just what I do? And at the core of these questions, underneath is a heart cry. Am I loved? Am I lovable? And as much as I take pride in my ability to feel productive and worthwhile and validated and busy and needed, and I love those moments when they work in my life, I love the washing machine on, I love the dishwasher whirring. I love my roster for church sorted. I love dinner cooking. I love my prayer list prayed through. I love plans for kids on Sunday totally underway. I love my ministry thriving. I love lots of little ticks covering lots of little tasks that boost my sense of winning the day. I love visible happy teenagers who are communicative and helpful and currently listening to this because they weren't here in front of me currently. I like to breathe with a sense of knowing that everything is under control and I'm the master of my very small universe. But the truth actually lies in what's in my heart. Am I living from every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord? And does this define me so boldly as it did Jesus? Jesus quotes Moses' words from Deuteronomy 8 right back at the devil. And this is, um, he quotes a part of this, but I'll read you the scripture that sits around it. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus did not deny the importance of bread. He put it in perspective as he compares it to the nurturing power of the word of God. We don't live only by eating bread. Sometimes a little bread is good, but it cannot be the only thing that keeps us going. So what is it that we are feeding ourselves? What is shaping you? What is in your heart? I did ballet as a child, and it's okay for you to be surprised that this body is a ballet body, (laughs) and there is no slide for this. (laughs) It was a very short stint, and I learned two lifelong valuable lessons. There's quite a lot of sharing. (laughs) I can do this. The secret to life, these are my lessons I learned from ballet. The secret to life is your ability to hold in both your stomach and your bottom at the same time. And that church is my free gift to you this morning. 
It'll carry you everywhere. Yeah? And number two, and this is, um, this is the deeper learning that I learned from my stint. I don't actually think I could call myself a ballerina. I just did some ballet. God bless my mother. Number two, when it comes to the end of your Christmas recital, an almond is not a coconut ice. Just go with me. You'll work it out. An almond is, in fact, a sad participant in the Christmas performance. It is forgettable, and it does not have a major role. Its ballet arms are told to stay still. It wears a one-coloured leotard, and that colour is sadly very akin to beige. Its fabric is simple and frighteningly knicker-like. It has a little stretchy hat on its head, pushed down on its thick and rather unruly misbehaving hair. It has no frills, no chill, no sequins, no contrasting pretty bright colours and no tutu skirt, nor any little sparkly extras. It is in fact clearly nothing extra. It goes sullenly across the stage with a very short, unimpressive Christmas recital distance, holding in its tummy and bottom with all of its might <laughs> and horribly aware of its lack of skill and finesse. Desperate in every carefully placed little ballet foot to be something more, to have a more noticeable and necessary role. It yearns with every fibre of its little almond body to have been the coconut ice, and it never forgets. It feels this way for 40 years. My personal quest for relevance has been a lifelong journey. Other concerning highlights along the way include claims of being able to yodel. Not my fault, my middle name is Switzer, which is very similar to the word Switzerland, but is in fact my mother's maiden name. I made 20 cents off that claim. And also that I could fly like Mary Poppins could with her umbrella which in fact was not true and was a slight tug of wind and a boldness to jump off the adventure playground. <laughs> but more on these things later. Prior to Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 3, Jesus has had his identity clearly stated. So we read out Jesus, uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 4 and uh, just the chapter before that. He has his identity clearly stated. He knows who he is through his stunning baptism moment and his outlined genealogy, a very distinctive genealogy that connects Jesus as a son of Joseph to Adam and to God. That in itself is a very firm foundation, an anchoring knowledge of who he is. At his baptism, Jesus, who was just casually in the queue, it would seem, with others, now has the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and through an open heaven. Jesus' father speaks in an audible voice to his son, declaring that this is his son, that he is loved and that he is well pleased with him. And this phenomenal scene is happening as Jesus has been baptized by the one who has prepared the way for him. It's like all the possible elements on heaven and earth have come together in a statement of identity. And interestingly, Jesus has done nothing yet. No miracles, no healings, no death for all humanity, but he is affirmed and loved and seen for who he is. Pete Scazzaro translates God's words to his son as this, you are lovable, you are good, it's so good that you exist. 
Now that is a complete tank filler. Total wholeness rests in that phrase. You are lovable, you are good, and it's so good that you exist. Scazzero goes on to say about Jesus that this love becomes the foundation of his self-understanding and the root source of how he feels about himself. We are also deeply loved. We also need to anchor ourselves in this love as we explore who we really are. This is the foundation in which we bravely face our feelings and our vulnerabilities. And yet, sadly, we also face these cruel words. God's love for you will never be enough. You are not lovable. You are not good enough. The first temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness was the temptation to be relevant. I am what I do. I am my ability to perform. And the question comes hard. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you really are who you say you are, if your identity really is held in God, if you have any tricks up your sleeve, then now would be the time to bring them out. If you are, then show me. Do something helpful, something useful, and save yourself. Satan is going after the heart of his identity. He's challenging his name, and he's pushing him into doing something, something to prove that he would indeed be who he says he is. He's wanting to reinforce the lie of identity, that we are only what we produce. That voice just knows how to get at us too just where to come from us, for us. We face this too. Society demands the same. Who do you think you are? What have you done? How are you useful? What do you do? We are challenged within ourselves to measure ourselves on what we do, who we have in our lives, how we're, being, how we're performing, how we're being useful. The temptation is for us to find our worth and value outside of God's inexhaustible free love for us in Christ. Which makes absolutely no sense on a Sunday morning when you're feeling loved up on excellent worship, great community, beautiful encouraging words from the front. But on any given Tuesday when that glow of inexhaustible free love has worn off and you're tired and you've been reminded in lots of unpleasant ways of your worthlessness and your lack of purpose and unbelievable ability to really stuff things up, and you're already deep into judging yourself, then the temptation really kicks in good and proper. Would anyone love me if I'm not doing anything that worthwhile, if I'm just actually completely overwhelmed by my own failings? How do I know how to show up? How do I respond to the invitation of identity without falling into the trap of doing? It's not the relevant behavior here that needs to be despised. It's that it should not be the basis for our identity as Christians. But there is genuine wrestling to be had here, a tension with these two truths. In Henri Nouwen's book, In the Name of Jesus, which I'm going to be referring to a lot, it's a Reflections on Christian Leadership, he states this tension. Jesus' first temptation was to be relevant, to turn stones into bread. Are we not called to do something that makes people realize that we do make a difference in their lives? Is being productivity driven or successful or efficient or helpful or dignified as a doer of good, someone who makes progress not a virtuous goal? In the temptation to be relevant, there is a very relatable and understandable human need for appreciation and recognition. Perhaps it was the inevitable trajectory of the sad beige almond, but I was ambitious in my teaching career. 
not just to climb the ladder, but to make an impact and bring real change. And I asked myself every year when I evaluated what I was doing and what part of the education sector I was working in, where can I cause the most change? Where can I actually see progress? Is it in the room with the children? Is it becoming a specialist teacher? Is it learning the ropes of management? Is it working for the Ministry of Education? Is it training and mentoring teachers? Where is my relevance and influence and reputation and usefulness going to be the most impacting? And I was fortunate to be able to try a little of all of these options, and I carried with me the desire to become someone accomplished, respected, influential, and worth listening to in this field. I admired these people, and I set a goal to become exactly like them. Now one says this, and it stings a little to read it. The way of the Christian is not the way of upward mobility, in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. I've, you see, I've totally mastered this. <sighs> Powerlessness and humility in the spiritual life do not refer to people who have no spine, who let everyone make decisions for them. They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they are ready to follow him wherever he guides them, always trusting that with him they will find life and find it abundantly. So you can see it's been an interesting transition of letting go, of embracing a new role. Responding to a sense of call and trusting that my identity lies in whose I am and not what I do. And there can be times in Bay Kids when a sense of polished, glittering accomplishment is not easily visible. Pick a Sunday. <laughs> and the sum total of my ability to give to the spiritual formation of the next generation is centered around walking towards to the toilet and finding the exact right tiny teddy biscuit flavour, which is incredibly important. There are 15 in a box and three, three flavours. You need to open that box with one hand, whilst having your eyes firmly fixed on the children, and having your other hand unnecessarily covered in hand sanitizer that someone's got excited about covering in their own hand. But you need to remain a calm voice to simultaneously pray for the kai and strongly encourage sitting, and all of those on the roster said, amen. And by the way, no one wants to go to the toilet at a helpful time or take the tiny teddy biscuit packet that they first touched. And no one is discussing this at the Ministry of Education. And no one has much interest in this conversation piece when I do my groceries after church and the checkout person, bless them, says to me, how's your morning gone? But I love my job deeply. I love our kids. I love teaching them and learning from them and re-seeing the world through their eyes. I love that this church is theirs, that they have a very strong sense of belonging, that they're unafraid to pray about everything. They have built my faith, and I acknowledge that in this season there is a grace on my life for this and that I do not do any of this alone. I'm in awe of those of you who serve in Bay Kids, and particularly our preschool team. You are very much behind the scenes, faithfully building the foundation of how our smallest but very valued churchgoers will know they are belonging and they are loved, and even though you don't receive well-articulated feedback from two-year-olds. 
So even with no carefully built-up professional reputation, no easy-to-translate job description, when I ask what I do, I sometimes fear the easiest way to explain it all is to refer to myself as one of my heroes, the Vicar of Dibley. And I just leave that with people, ever hopeful. The work of the downwardly mobile kingdom of God is a work of building into the lives of children and families, of making space for relationships, of teaching truth and formation, of speaking identity and hope. And I've learned so much in this journey. I have grieved and I've been surprised and I'm learning to let go. But I am deeply grateful for the sum total of my life's opportunities and experiences and mentors and achievements. And I love the whole thing because I'm working out my calling as we all are charged to do, wrestling with our identity, wrestling with what the kingdom of God actually looks like in our everyday, ordinary lives. Whatever we wrestle with, there's a strong desire in us as Christians to prove our relevance, to bring back some dignity to our beliefs, to be useful and not seen as religious or removed, to be needed and to be normal, to have a respectable job and not be super awkward at the supermarket. We desire to contribute and play a part. It's largely a beautiful desire. It brings out the best in people and it fulfills a sense of our calling and our, who we are as a community. The cyclone has shown us this. People want to help and contribute and get stuck in alongside someone else's pain and suffering. It's also a strong message of our faith. The doing and the functioning as a body as we look after each other, as we be the hands and feet. And it's real right now for us in the Bay. We are faced with the question of what can we do? What do we have to offer? What does real help and support look like? And that's not the problem. Don't be confused and think that that's the temptation. Quit your jobs and decide to hand out tiny teddies. We need to resist the temptation. The temptation is that all of this becomes our identity and it replaces the relationship that it's chased after instead of the pursuit of Jesus and the reassurance of his unconditional love. That message is coming through strong this morning. The bay needs shovels and diggers and manpower and housing, and but also it needs Jesus and prayer and hope and community. Andre now and again with his zingers. The question is not how many people take you seriously, how much are you going to accomplish, can you show some results, but are you in love with Jesus? He's not trying to be overly simplistic here either. He's saying, do you know the heart of God, his forgiveness, his care, his nearness, his healing, his unconditional love and his compassion? Dangerously, we can lose our love of being in Jesus's presence, our love of prayer, and instead we can increase our love of doing stuff and getting stuff done and that adrenaline rush of being useful. Both are needed. And luckily for us, we know a guy. Jesus embodied both. He embodied a comfortableness with the tension of both and. Jesus didn't meet every need. Jesus devoted time to prayer away in his Father's presence. But he didn't spend his whole time doing that either. His life was a series of interruptions, a series of eating moments in community, healing, teachings, withdrawing to pray, thinking about feeding people, organizing feeding people, bringing freedom, 
practically just been there amongst his friends in their lives and in their needs. He was secure in his identity and he worked both from their anchoring point. We do not resist the temptation to be relevant by doing irrelevant things, but by clinging to the word of God, who is the source of all relevancy. Bay Kids is highly relevant. The children in our church are relevant. Henri Nouwen puts it this way, to live a life that is not dominated by the desire to be relevant, but is instead safely anchored in the knowledge of God's unconditional and unlimited love, we have to become mystics. Don't freak out. A mystic is a person whose identity is deeply rooted in God's love. And before the word mystic makes you feel a little uncomfortable, now one is talking about the relationship with God that we can have, connection to him, being in his presence. As Dallas Willard said, listening for his voice and being led beside still waters. He is encouraging us to anchor ourselves in heart knowledge of God. Henri Nouwen's antidote for all of this temptation and wrestling with our identity is to be found in the presence of the one who loves us. In prayer, in sitting in the presence of Jesus and in being reminded of who he is and who we are in him. We need to anchor ourselves in being known and being able to be vulnerable and honest in this knowing. One of John Tyson's favorites is this, God can't redeem the person you're pretending to be. And I know that prayer often frustrates us or eludes us Sometimes because it's got a lack of immediacy, sometimes because it's got a lack of productivity, and sometimes because it has a lack of actual tangible outcome. In saying those frustrations, though, like prayer doesn't work, or prayer doesn't do anything, or perhaps we're saying under Eiffel, all that noise and disappointment, am I loved? Am I lovable? Prayer is a relationship. It's listening, it's been known, and it's a safe and secure foundation. It's a deep well. Sometimes it feels like a discipline, and sometimes it feels like it's a delight. But we need it. We need it. Because it takes more than bread to really live. We need to live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know who we are in him. I know I'm now in bombing you again, but <laughs> this man is a legend. He goes on to say, the great message that we have to carry as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us, not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen to proclaim, proclaim that love is the true source of all human life. We need this message clear and settled in our own hearts because we are needed as the proclaimers of this message into a world that despite its best efforts to put on a really brave and deeply in control veneer still yearns for the unconditional love of God, still yearns to be fully seen and known. Jesus cried out to the crowds in John 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, let anyone who believes in me come and drink. We carry this good news. This hope of redemption, this love. The leaders of the future now and says will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows them to enter into deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the life of Jesus there. Let me say those words to you again. In the future, 
we need to um, be people who dare to claim our irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows us to enter into a deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the life of Jesus there. Uh, Jason Valendi um, puts this in his commentary on Nowin's book. May we be like the Jesus who resisted the temptation to be relevant, but may we be like the Jesus who defines success by our willingness to follow. This morning I want to acknowledge and honour the humility and the vulnerability and the beautiful worthiness that exists in our community, in this room, amongst those of us who for different reasons experience irrelevance but who in quiet, deep obedience to God live lives of great purpose, encouragement, servant-heartedness, and clear calling, giving to others, praying for others despite their own pain and their own grief, who find joy yet wrestle with discouragement, who seek connection and yet struggle to be seen, who do great invisible works of the kingdom of God in their own vocational lives. Amy Monda, I'm speaking to you. This week, I have leaned on my friend Amy through text message as she's prayed me through the sermon from her bed where she is in pain every day. And her invisibility is to on it. She's a huge part of our community, even though she's been watching church for weeks from home. There are so many people like this in our community who have been invisible and felt irrelevant, and you are worthy of honour. <laughs> oh, no one likes to be the mess, do they? But it's one of my gifts for you all. <laughs> I want to finish. <laughs> I will finish, don't worry. I'm praying for our community, and I want to use Paul's prayer to the Ephesians from chapter 3. Because it's a reminder of who we are, it's a reminder of whose we are, and it's a reminder of what strengthens us and what is at our core. So I'd ask you to stand and I want to pray these words over you, church. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, Bay Vineyard, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as a community, that we would know our identity in you, that we would know our irrelevance, Lord, in you, that whatever we do in our daily lives, Lord, that we would be rooted and established in love, Lord, and that we would be message bearers of this love, that we'd be unafraid to see through the veneer of the desperate world that's out there, Lord, and that and the people that are in our daily lives would start to see that the source of identity is love, the source of identity is you. Lord, I just speak into the people of Bavinia that they would know whose they are and that they would have their lives guided by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Lord. They would drench themselves in you, Lord. They would know that they can return to you at the end of every day and start all over again. 
Lord, I just pray in this season, Lord, of difficulty, God, that we would know who we are in you, that you would define us. Thank you, Lord, that you went through those temptations and you know that battle and you know that struggle. And you held Satan's eye and said, I do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Give us that strength, Lord, that we wouldn't be people who do, but people who be, Lord. Thank you, God. Just had on my heart this week, you can be seated. Just had on my heart this week, um, just three very specific types of people that I would love to pray for this morning. I've got time for this too. Uh, one is just a, a really deeply personal one in terms of identity. Moving from doing for God to being with God. And sometimes that can take quite a long process of undoing. Knowing that you're loved before anything else. Remember the image of that Jesus' baptism is before he begins his ministry. He is good. It's good that he exists. And learning to just rest in him. So that's one type of people. A second one is just that stirring.